Welcome, and thanks for listening to episode 64 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World with Brian Davis and Dr. Kevin Boyd DDS. Go to KOYONO.com for minimalist lifestyle accessories, such as a slimy wallet. Brian has one and loves it. Use coupon code SUSHI15 for 15% discount on your order. Here we go. Hi, Brian. Hi, Dr. Boyd. How are you? I'm good. Uh, please feel free to call me Dr. Boyd if, if it feels good, but I'm Kevin. I don't mind being called <laughs> Okay, Kevin. All right. I think that sounds good. Good. Can you hear all the background noise here? That's yours, all right. Yes. You know, I, was, I attended um, AHS 13. I think I was at a breakfast. I was sitting with a group of people, and I was talking on and on about uh, <laughs> one of my interests, which is uh, child oral health. Amazing. <laughs> and um, tongue tie uh-huh. and uh, a few of these issues. And lo and behold, you sat down next to me. Huh. <laughs> so I did. I, yeah. I, and it I was t- completely random. You didn't overhear me or anything. And then you were just listening to me, I think, for a second or two. <laughs> Go on and on. And then you said, hey, you know what? Um, I'm speaking here at AHS. And guess what I'm talking about? And it turned out to be you were, you were speaking about sleep apnea, attention deficit yeah. disorder, and small jaws, and yeah. how these were not likely things of the past. Yeah. Yeah, my, my um, thesis, I, I'm actually um, preparing myself to enter a graduate program in biological anthropology or evolutionary medicine. I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm taking undergraduate courses now i'm i'm in upper level courses but i i started out with intro to you know human origins and then evolutionary biology archaeology and now i'm into some real heavy stuff that uh it's just great so i i may just complete a, a bachelor's degree i'm 58 years old i i already have a good job i don't really need it for anything but preparing myself for practicing dentistry um more from a paleo perspective, uh, and which I'm already doing. Um, and I don't know, it just uh, makes a lot more sense um, to do it this way. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying dentistry more than I ever have in my life. So, What have you found in your regular practice that <clears throat> led you into this path, or have you always been evolutionarily minded? Or Yeah, I... I mean, I grew up sort of a religious liberal, and now I'm not even religious. But uh, my, um, my, I have a science background, of course. I, I did a master's degree in nutrition and dietetics uh, before I went to dental school. Um, so, and I did my work on tooth decay, and I, I pretty much at that point realized if there's no sugar, there's no decay. But it didn't come till much later in my dental career when I learned about Weston Price and how he visited these non-Western exposed aboriginal cultures that didn't have tooth decay. And then 
I started talking with anthropologists and said, oh, no, there's no tooth decay in the, in the fossil record till about 10,000 years ago. And it's like, okay. And I didn't know how long humans have been around at that point. And then now they found a skull that's 200,000 years old, that it's somebody that's exactly us. We could go back in time and mate with this person. You know, um, so I said, okay, so 200,000 years, we go without tooth decay. And then it suddenly shows up. Uh, it's sugar and it's grain. So I've eliminated tooth decay from my practice virtually. I mean, I still do a little bit of drilling, um, but not much. And I'm focused almost entirely on helping kids breathe better through their nose by reshaping uh, their jaws or really, or, you know, often under the age of five. Uh, so yeah. that's let's one, let's 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 yeah. stick on that for a minute because I think I've covered sugar grains tooth decay a few times on this show, and that that's pretty easy info to find out. I strongly believe it. I hope all others do. But let's talk about that: the mouth, the mouth shape, the palate, and these things. How does that work? Well, if you look. Um, the shape of your, say, upper jaw. You know, if you get a, if you if you could go in your mouth and, you know, shrink yourself down and stand on the tongue with a big flashlight and just look up at that palate, the roof of your mouth and your upper jaw. It's pretty much, if it isn't already, it wants to be the shape of your tongue. I mean, the tongue is a template in a baby for how the dental arcade or the arch should be shaped. So, if that's why if you look at prehistoric, you know, pre-industrial revolution, uh, it's really been only two or three hundred years since we started getting impacted wisdom teeth and narrow jaws and what we call malocclusion, where the jaws and teeth don't come together right, and that's the need for orthodontia. Um, but but pretty much, you know, the tongue is the template, and it starts, you know, really in utero. Uh, but certainly during the first three, four years of life, and that's usually how long kids used to breastfeed, and you know the weaning process wasn't usually complete till age three or four. Um, the ancestral type or paleo type of infant feeding um, was conducive to the tongue pressing up into the roof of the mouth, and the, the roof of the mouth is made up of little bones or fontanelles, if you will, the soft spots on a baby's head. The reason they're there is to allow for brain expansion. And once the brain is done expanding, the skull cranium you know, capacity is, is reached, and the hat size of a child, the circumference of the head, doesn't really change after eight or nine years old, you know, because the brain is pretty much almost its complete adult size, certainly by, by nine or ten. Um, well, the analogy is good for how the tongue shapes the palate and the midface. I mean, it's not just the roof of the mouth, but, you know, part of the palatal bones are the middle of your face bones that support your nose and your cheeks, you know, all of that. So our hypothesis, and again, I'm, I'm preparing myself to enter into either a master's or a Ph.D. program, and I'm, I'm, we're starting a research project. I'm working with a dental, two PhD anthropologists, one's a dental anthropologist, and we're creating a, a protocol or a study design to to test this hypothesis. And I won't go into the details of that, but if early in life, 
a child is getting the proper stimulation from the breast and then later something called baby lead weaning, uh, you know, that, that chewing hard unprocessed foods fairly early in life and continuing to do it during the entire two or three young three year weaning process will uh, encourage the tongue to switch from sucking to chewing. And a, a suck swallow is what babies are born with. Um, and, you know, our ancestors breastfed usually till six or eight months old at least. In the fossil record, there's ways to, to prove that. Um, but what happens is if a baby is fed modern baby food, and I don't know if you've ever fed a little baby, but the first thing mm-hmm. it does is it blows it out all over its chin and, you know, because it thinks it's thick milk and it wants to suck it. Well, eventually it'll stay in the mouth, but the baby never learns the chew swallow if they're given purees. And, and you know, maybe our ancestors used to pre-masticate food, chew, you know, chew it or spit, kiss feeding. You know, they do that for maybe a month or two. But certainly by nine or ten and certainly a year old, a baby, a pre, you know, a paleo baby and before was eating everything that everyone in the clan was eating. Otherwise, they couldn't move on in six weeks. I mean, it just, and they didn't, they couldn't process food. So that's what our jaws are, the genomic potential for full wide jaws that accommodate 32 teeth, that means wisdom teeth. It also means it accommodates the tongue in an upward forward position. When that tongue falls down, if a baby never learns that lateralization of a, of, of a more mature swallow from a suck swallow, when the tongue falls down, then it loses the template and the cheek muscles start to pull in on the teeth. And voila, there we go. The orthodontic profession gets created. We need someone to <laughs> straighten them. So, yeah, so you're talking about it's actually just the simple act of chewing food. Well, not right? again. It's, is it, is it's it not, helpful? It's not the actual chewing. That, okay. It's chewing as a component. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a lifelong, you know, I say that infant feeding, I mean, at... What, what, an, what a paleo um, pattern of infant and early childhood feeding is, we've defined it for the purposes of testing our hypothesis, means on-demand exclusive breastfeeding for at least six months, if not longer, after which a weaning process is begun according to a pattern called baby-led weaning. When a child can sit up, they can actually grasp big things and start to lick them and smell them and look at them and get a feel for what real food is. And then gradually, as the child gets a more refined, what we call pinching reflex, they can pick up smaller things. And then they're starting to get teeth, and they can start chewing. Uh, it's not a – It's not a, um, a lot of people think there's a choking risk. It's like the pinching reflex is not refined enough until the gag reflex is well-developed. It's a perfect mm-hmm. – so anyway, the chewing isn't really the force that's making the jaws wider. The actual tongue passing the food, a lateral handoff, if you will, of, of getting the food to the sides, that's really where chewing comes in. And that was confusing to me at first. And I actually had a discussion with Daniel Lieberman uh, at Harvard, who's written the book, The Evolution of the Human Head. And he just said, you know, an orthodontic expander, that can't provide enough force. And if it's chewing, you know, and then if we realize it's the tongue that's giving continuous uh, uh, pressure by going up into the roof of the mouth. So that's really what it is. Oh, yeah, that's that, that's that <clears throat> mindless activity that your tongue does. You know, if you never think about your tongue, you'll never bite it. It's, yeah, <laughs> it moves right, the food right. side to side, wherever it needs to go. If you ever think about it, it seems like you'll always bite it. But 
it just so that that activity that 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 muscle it, it, activity it, in there helps this that 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 hypothesis helps explain so many things but it is you know i'm not saying it's a fact it's a sure, testable hypothesis sure. too and we're we're going to try to falsify it and so you know but but it explains so many things and i i learned this from a uh, a group of healthcare providers called oral myofunctional therapists. I don't know if you know about OMT, but that's somebody I can give you some names of brilliant academic OMTs. Yeah, that's great. That can really, you should have them on your show. Uh, Joy Moeller, M O E L L E R, and she's lectured at Ella, uh, UCLA and taught a course there, and, and she taught me a lot of this. Uh, so yeah, somebody you you because because it's the tongue. It's all about the tongue and getting the lips closed and getting. If you're bringing the tongue upwards and forwards into its best position, that means your lower jaw, where the base of the tongue is, has to be coming up and forward. So you know it helps promote good jaw architecture, good facial architecture, um, straight teeth, uh, and but most of all, excellent nasal breathing. Now, that's another thing that is real important to understand, that not all breathing is alike. And you may remember from my lecture is that breathing through your mouth is like McDonald's. It's junk food air. It's junk air. It's, it's emergency <laughs> Yeah, I saw about 12 people hit their iPhones and iPads tweeting that out as soon as you said that. It was, yeah. it was nasal, hilarious. Nasal, air, nasal breathing is paleo breathing. That's how our ancestors did it. And, you, you know, a face that is attractive with the high cheekbones and full upper lip and bright eyes, according to Darwinian selection, I mean, you know, using that framework, a really good-looking face is one that projects predominant nose breathing. It just does, and it sends a message to the eye of the beholder that, you know what, I'm going to make babies pretty good, <laughs> you know. So I, uh, I, I try to look at everything from an evolutionary perspective, and this makes sense, you know, nose breathing is so important, uh, and the reason why, and I'll list four things, um, when you breathe through your mouth, you're breathing room air or ambient air from outside that's, that's probably not clean, it's probably not the same humidity as your body, it's probably not the same temperature as your body, and it absolutely does not get cleaned and filtered by the sinus complex and have the benefit of a powerful antimicrobial, antimicrobial vasodilator and antioxidant called nitrogen oxide. Not to be confused with nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas. Nitrogen oxide is a powerful chemical. Every time you take a breath, a breath through your nose, you are dosing yourself with nature's gift, a pharmaceutical. It's a nature's pharmaceutical. It sterilizes the air that you're breathing. It helps diffusion of that air across the alveoli in your lungs into your bloodstream straight to your brain. Ask any Coke user how quickly something from your nose gets to your brain. Okay, so if you're getting clean air, filtered air, humidified air, warm air, maximally diffused into your bloodstream, it will go straight to your brain. And this is the link between impaired nasal breathing at night in children and neurological deficits like ADD. It could even be tied to, and I'm not saying this, I'm just saying that it's hypothesis generating here, um, this inability to breathe through the nose at night in children 
could be affecting IQ. It could be affecting asthma. It could be affecting um, autism. I mean, I you know, I, and I'm not saying that. I'm just this this whole. Yeah. This is a whole the idea of, is the the brain. It, it, the the it, moment it lacks its required oxygen will will cause a will will find its way to get oxygen whether that can be wake itself wake the body up but it needs efficiently breathed oxygen right right and yes oxygen yeah. delivered at the right temperature and humidity I, mm-hmm. this is like brand new stuff it really is but it's mm-hmm. evidence based it's absolutely evidence based uh, so yeah that's that's I think if I could if there's a take home that your audience gets. That would, to me, would be the most important thing. Um, and if you have children, please don't let pets go into the kids' bedroom, especially at night when they're sleeping, but even during the day because the pet hairs can affect it. Um, please have the best humidifier and air filter in, in the kids' room. Please tear up the carpets, no rugs, and minimize stuffed animals and clean them regularly if they're going to have one or two stuffed animals. The bedspreads, the blankets have to be you know, washed two, two or three times a week. I, I'm sorry, but it's just uh, a minimal thing that somebody can do uh, that might help the kids not get enlarged tonsils and adenoids and, and maybe, you know, help them breathe better through their nose at night. Um, you know, so that's, that's a take-home uh, that I just want to convey to everybody. Yeah, and what are some of the signs people could look for in their children? You know, I know um, my son, he suffered from night terrors. Yeah, night terrors, those are parasomnias. That certainly could be an indicator of poor sleep hygiene. Uh, what, what, the, what parasomnias do and bedwetting and tooth grinding and snoring, those are all things that are designed to take children out of deep, slow-wave sleep and get them to higher levels of consciousness so that they can get more air to the brain. It's the, it's the autonomic nervous system saying, you know what? I need you to sleep, but I got to have oxygen first. So I'm going to take you out of that deep stage three of sleep, and I'm going to get you up to where you're maybe almost awake. Sorry, got to do this because I need air, and that's really it's intermittent hypoxia. We call it when a child snores. Uh, if a child sleeps in funny positions, uh, you know, little babies that sleep with their butts up in the air on their bellies, that's that's a sign. If you know, grinding of their teeth. Uh, waking up thirsty, sweating, kicking their sheets, moving all around, um, walking in their sleep, talking in their sleep, banging their head on their pillow, nightmares, night terrors. Um, you know, these are all things that, and really, any school teacher can do this, or a school nurse, um, any pediatric specialist, a pediatrician should be asking parents all these questions. But sleep medicine has sort of been the poor stepchild of the medical school curriculum. And it barely gets a few lectures in, if any. It's just like dentistry. I love talking to physicians about dentistry because they don't know anything about it. And I'm, for once, the smartest person in the room when I talk to them. <laughs> but the sleep medicine's the same way. And it's not just physicians, but it's dentists. And we're actually working with school nurses now and, and getting teachers to, especially in preschool and things, to get a message to the school nurse that the kids snoring during nap time, get a message to the parent that, that you know, this needs to be recognized. So this is great that you're having me on your show because we're mm-hmm. yeah we might reach some parents here and then and, and what does a parent do? What, well, what? you know, like I said, that's another thing is what does the dog do when it catches the bus? Okay, I mean, you know, if that's a, a good metaphor, it's mm-hmm. just like yeah, we've we've 
the cats out of the bag, but now what do we do? Um, and I say, you know, like I said, get the room free of animal hair and, and change it. You know, all those things are things that parents can do in the immediate. But let the pediatrician know. Um, and most parents can Google. If you hit snoring children, uh, ADD, and Karen Bonnick, B-O-N-N-U-C-K, a colleague of ours at, at uh, uh, Albert Einstein uh, Medical School in New York, um, she's done major research, epidemiological, like thousands of kids over eight years, you know, that shows that, you know, the behavioral problems ensue from snoring in infancy and, you know, bedwetting is, and I think I said that, but, um, parents can look that up and download the articles or at least forward it to your pediatrician. You know, <laughs> sorry, I love you, but why didn't you ask me these questions? And you mm-hmm. looked at my kid's mm-hmm. mouth and all you were looking for was cavities. Did you see the shape of the palate? Mm-hmm. You know, pediatricians can be trained in this. And, uh, we're, and if I can plug a course that we're having at NYU, I'm on staff. Uh, I'm on the, the board of directors for the American Academy of Physiological and Medical Dentistry, AAPMD.org. Um, and we are a consortium of physicians, dentists, and neuromyologists that are uh, – we're real focused on what we call airway-centric dentistry and medicine. We want kids to breathe well. Um, and we're it's Dr. Stephen Sheldon, S-H-E-L-D-O-N. He's my boss at Children's Hospital, Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, where I'm on his sleep medicine service as a dental consultant. Um, he's going to be teaching the same course that he taught to me and some other dentists at uh, Wash U uh, in St. Louis Medical School on sleep medicine assessment, not, not doing sleep studies. You know, that's an overnight thing, you know, that you put kids on to, to measure their, their um, you know, sleep quality. But sleep assessment is something that everybody who deals with children, whether they're health professionals or not, could be taught real basic things, just like those, you know, questions that I asked about snoring, the bedwetting, the tooth grinding, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. But even doing a physical assessment and looking at the face of the kid's Sleeping with their mouth open or walking around with their mouth open. Uh, if they're, you know, straining, tilting their heads forward, that's a compensation trying to get better air. Um, uh, if, if, uh, if you look in the roof of the mouth and it's real deep up there, you can barely get a pinky up there because it's so narrow. That means the tongue isn't going up there and developing it. It's probably forced against the back of the throat, which decreases ability to get air through the nose. Um, air can be blocked at the nose, the sinuses, the adenoids and tonsils called the nasopharynx, um, the oropharynx, you know, the, the mouth, the hypopharynx below the mouth. There's all kinds of places that air can get blocked. But if a child has a narrow palate and uh, a back, you know, a jaw, like a chin is part of the, the throat, you know, if the chin's way back. Those are kids that are really at risk for what we call sleep-disordered breathing. Um, and that's, you know, inability to move air through the nose at night, of which sleep apnea is, is, you know, what everybody hears about. That's the worst case scenario. Um, but those kids are also um, susceptible to possible neurological deficits like ADD. Um, and incidentally, the drugs that they give for ADD, like mm-hmm. Ritalin, it's a stimulant. And mm-hmm. all it's doing is addressing one symptom of sleep deprivation. ADD is a nonsense disease. It's not a disease at all. It's a syndrome or a collection of symptoms centered around sleep deprivation. Most kids' symptoms of ADD uh, rectify. They, in, in many kids, they completely go away. You can get them off Ritalin, 
if you get their jaw shaped right and their tongue postures right and you eliminate other possible causes like iron deficiency, I mean, you know, it's the the architecture of the jaw and face is certainly a big component, but there are there are other things. The yeah, yeah. tonsils, yeah. nasal, so big. Dietary intervention. Dietary and food then, allergies, you bet. Yeah. yeah. Then the nose breathing. And then and do you have people, like implants or things like that that you have to use at some point? No, no, no. No. We just use little orthodontic retainers. They you know it's the same thing, you know, orthodontists they're getting in earlier than they used to and they're not extracting permanent teeth as much anymore, but they're still getting in too late. The American Orthodontic Association says the children should be seen, you know, by age seven, I think. Well, you know, by age eight, a kid's orofacial and cranial structures, they're, they're all like 80, 90% of their adult size by then. A kid can be having significant airway issues relative to the shapes of their jaws, why orthodontists are saying wait till later, 9 or 10 even. Um, if you just want straight teeth, then yeah, it's okay to wait that long. But no, we use these orthodontic expanders really, like as young as three, even I got a two-and-a-half-year-old that's got some major breathing issues that we're expanding, and the kid's tolerating it beautifully. It's not for orthodontic reasons, even though it will confer orthodontic benefits, because if I'm getting that kid's jaw protection adequate and, and proper for tongue posture, then they're going to have more room for their permanent teeth, even though that wasn't my primary intent. Right, so, which is, but, and, but if there is room for those teeth, that's a great sign or a potential sign for overall health. It, it is. It had, it, the, the website is BioBlock, B-I-O-B-L-O-C, orthotropics, or face-focused, all one word, face-focused orthodontics. Um, and you can read all about BioBlock orthotropics. It was invented by an armchair anthropologist who's also an oral surgeon and an orthodontist from England. He's in his 80s now and still teaching all over the world. And I'm one of his students. I studied with him in London, and I studied with his uh, protege, Dr. William Hang, um, in California. And so, you know, there's a hand, there's probably three or 400 people in North America trained in this technique. Um, and you know, it's just, it's got to, the kids have to be recognized under the age of five. They just have to, this, this has to be done, and that's where things are going. And you're, I am so grateful for you inviting me on, because this oh, helps yeah. raise awareness about this. Oh, yeah, I could not believe your talk at AHS, and the fact that I got a chance to sit down with you at a meal and discuss some of these issues. Well, um, thanks, Brian. I'm honored. You're, you're a legend in that group. <laughs> uh, so Do you have, can we cover tongue tie real quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, tongue tie. I, again, OMT, oral myofunctional therapy. Uh, Joy Moeller, you have to get her on. She oh. knows all about tongue tie. Okay. She taught me all this stuff. Is that if a child can't elevate their tongue into the roof of the mouth, first of all, it can impair ability to latch on in breastfeeding. But even if a child can breastfeed okay, it doesn't mean that and it's called ankyloglossia. And the real obvious ones are at the tip of the tongue to where, but there's a, uh, a new definition of it. There's varying levels of tongue tie. And what we're recognizing more is that some kids, uh, and that's that little piece of skin that holds your tongue to the floor of your mouth, just in case your audience don't know what it is. Um, it can go further back, but still... Um, it's, it's more, it's not at the tip of the tongue, but it starts to go back, but it's still restricting the tongue to completely go up into the roof of your mouth. 
when, when a person is at rest, whether it's an adult or a child, that means when you're not chewing, talking, laughing, you know, whatever, playing an instrument, your tongue should always be at rest, completely intimate with the roof of your mouth. Now, the, the, the paired structure to, to, you know, the lower teeth, the paired structure to the lower teeth is the upper teeth, okay? The, the paired structure of the lower lip is the upper lip. The paired structure for the roof of the mouth is not the floor of the mouth, as some people think. It's what is attached to the floor of the mouth. It is the tongue. The tongue should sit intimately, up fully engaged into the complete roof of the mouth. And the teeth should be lightly together and the lips closed. And we have a little mantra. Uh, lips closed, teeth together, tongue in the roof of your mouth. And we have kids say that over and again. Lips, lips, together, uh, lips closed, teeth together, tongue in the roof of your mouth. And really, it's just that's how we want to train kids. And if a kid has any element of restriction of that tongue being able to, to elevate into the roof of the mouth, via ankyloglossia, A-N-K-Y-L-G-L-O-S-S-I-A. Ankyloglossia is a technical term of tongue tie. Uh, that can impair that kid's ability, even if they can breastfeed successfully. So that's something to be addressed. I'm, I'm glad you, that, that that is high on your list because it's so Yeah, important. it really is, and it's easily diagnosable and yet massively underdiagnosed. Yeah, no, it's, that's great. It seems like um, this should be something as a cause for malpractice, in my opinion. Well, there are some things, um, and I, I, I know exactly what you're saying, but I don't try to be deliberately provocative to my colleagues because I try to remember where I was before I knew some of this stuff. Sure. So I, but in, in realizing how hard it is to change dogma, it's like religion, you know, and the stuff that we were taught by our professors who were the high priests and priestesses of medical and dental school and, you know, the, the classic authors of the textbooks. And it's, it's just hard uh, to shift that paradigm. Now, I, I can tell you one thing that you might find very interesting. If you look up um, the Flexner report, uh, F-L-E-X-N-E-R, he was a person who was hired by the American Medical Association in 1910 to um, try to get medical education in America out of the, the apprenticeship trade school mentality and make them legitimate, um, you know, science, like, and it's based on the, the German system. Um, they hired this guy to go around and say, what's wrong with the medical curriculum? Well, 1910 was only 50 years after Darwin published, and he, as is controversial now, back then when they put the medical school curriculum together, you know, physics, chemistry, anatomy, um, evolutionary biology was not seen as a legitimate basic science for doctors to need to know. So it wasn't included. And guess what? A hundred years later, it's still not. In fact, you do not need to understand natural selection to get into medical school. Hopefully that's changing. <laughs> right, uh, right. And dental, dental education is the same way. They did the same thing in dental school. They designed a curriculum in the 30s. Uh, and it hasn't changed. So, you know, you can get into dental school and through it without understanding a single thing, maybe about antibiotic resistance. That's where it's touched on a little, but it's just not, it's not seen as a legitimate basic science. And that's a problem. And isn't it funny that tongue tie is something that's recognized even by like what might be called like primitive tribes, people, 
I think I oh, read, yeah, I think I read somewhere that they would sharp, use a sharp nail, sharp right? Thing? Their sharp yeah, thumbnail. Uh, simply yeah. clip the the tongue tie there. That and well, it was tied to survival. If a baby couldn't breastfeed, they didn't live to become an ancestor. I yeah, mean, and these people innately knew these. <laughs> yeah, how to birth, how to raise a child <laughs> the correct way. Well, I applaud your your energy for for this issue because it really is under addressed, and you are really helping raise awareness. Well, I I appreciate. Oh, it. I thank you for your work. I'm really glad that uh, you took it to AHS too. Um, it's something that the I don't think is covered enough there. Um, all the uh, 20-something-plus people are trying to achieve perfect health, and they forget to talk about babies. <laughs> yeah, babies and, and oral health. Pregnancy, I, oral health, uh, facial health as representative to overall health. And I think it's a fascinating subject. And Well, that's another thing I'm trying to get my profession away from, is saying oral health is a component of overall health. You never hear... Uh, a liver doctor, a kidney doctor, or a cardiologist say, oh, heart health is a component of whole health. If you don't have a healthy heart, you're not healthy. If you don't have a healthy mm-hmm. mouth, you are not, not healthy. Not healthy, right. But I, it's, it's just our, our profession, and I'm not criticizing you, Brian. I'm just I understand. saying my profession has come to accept this paradigm that the mouth is not a separate, that, that it's not an integrated system to the, to the body. And it's 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 the portal to the body. It's you know, so I'm uh, you know I I even find myself slipping back into it. It's oral yeah, one of the things. Of yeah, one thing I do have a little bit of a problem with that's really popular right now is that um, you know they say uh, oral health quality is directly associated with heart health or your risk for cardiovascular disease, and then they promote things like toothbrushing to keep your mouth clean, but that's just it's it, it, missing the the whole point. It's it. it yeah. It it, it's, it was a it was a sexy thing that if yeah, you yeah. brush your teeth better, bacteria won't. And that the science is very shaky on that, but it's real. And quite frankly, if it gets more people to pay attention to oral hygiene, um, I, I'm really okay with it. And I think I don't think people are out there charlatans in promoting stuff that they know is not really scientific. They, they, the, the dental profession really is convinced that bacteria that you know can cause periodontal disease can get to the heart, and you know maybe it can vegetate in the heart. And I, but if it gets people to pay attention, but there's, sure, there's really sure. not a ton of good science on that. Right. But you're right; they're missing the boat. It's airway, and all periodontal disease or gum disease starts. You know, most of it is plaque mediated, and the plaque, you know, the tartar on the teeth. Our ancestors had it. We find calcified plaque that's called calculus on 30,000-year-old skulls, and they don't have cavities or gum disease. You know, it's only when you introduce grains, cereal grains and sugars, that it becomes a problem. But most people just don't want to think about that. So uh, whatever gets people to pay attention. But you okay, got it. You yeah. are right on. It's the airway. It's not, mm-hmm, not the mm-hmm. bacteria to get to your heart. But, wow. Um, this was great. This was... Uh... Wow, chock full of info. <laughs> this is fantastic. I've read a whole page of notes while we were talking. Well, have your uh, make sure to mention the Journal of the American Orthodontic Society. My my articles mm-hmm. um, are uh, published Darwinian Dentistry, and then also if I might plug Discovery in the Desert. It's an integrative health uh, medicine organization called ACAM. 
uh, American College for Advancement in Medicine, and we've been invited mm-hmm. to give uh, a you know a long symposium with these physicians on November 20th through the 24th. My talk is going to be infant feeding, sleep deprivation, and evolutionary medicine. Wow. Okay. Um, and again, it's ACAM Discovery in the Desert, um, integrative medical people, the holistic um, Weston Price type people. So wow, great. Yeah. Hey, do you think maybe you or your assistant could prepare a list of links of all this stuff? I mean, I think they're all on my website. It's uh, all there. Okay. I think so. If not, we'll get them on there. And plus, you know, I spoke at PACO, P-A-C-O. It was Pan American mm-hmm. uh, Conference on Childhood Obesity in Aruba, and it's causing, it's leading to major health change in in the Caribbean uh, in terms of how jaws are shaped and. Oh, healthcare providers have, uh, they really are being encouraged to recognize hmm. these problems. And there's a 24 minute, my lecture is, is online. If you just hit PACO, P A C O, and um, Kevin Boyd, um, I think okay. you know, you'll, you'll get that. Yeah, I'll be sure to track down just all these links that I can round up and make sure they're in the show notes. Um, is is the uh, AHS lectures, are they posted yet? I think um, they have uh, some of the. Uh, some of the info up there. So oh, I'll, good. Yeah, I'll, I have, I'll be well, sure to look into that. Well, this is great. Any, anything I can do to continue to work with you in any way, I, I just so much uh, appreciate and am honored to be associated with you. Oh, wow. well, so. Thank you, Kevin. I mean, this is my pleasure indeed. And uh, super, super important subject to me. I hope we reach a lot of people. I'll have all the show notes for folks to follow along. Thank you for your time. Great. You're welcome. Anytime, my friend. All right. We'll talk soon, okay? Okay. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Bye now.